Good morning, Harvest. Such a, an honor and a privilege to be with you here this morning. Let's just spend a moment in prayer. Father God, we, we thank you for your word, which you've revealed to us through Jesus and also through the Bible. And we ask that as, you, as we come to your word this morning, that it would bear fruit in our lives. You've said that when your word goes out, it doesn't return without having achieved its purpose. And so we ask that that would happen today. Please take my words, please take our hearts, so that we would be changed and transformed by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm wondering this morning how many of you have had treatment for Bulhazia, those, those big tablets that can make you feel very nauseous and, and sick. A certain junior member of our family, who shall remain nameless, needed to be treated for Bilhazia when he or she was just a little, a little child. So we, we administered the, the pills at bedtime and everybody went off to bed. And then at one o'clock in the morning, I heard somebody sprinting down the corridor, trying to make it to the toilet, not making it in time. And I went outside <laughs> and there was vomit in the corridor on the floor on, on the walls and even on the ceiling there was even vomit on the ceiling and you know when you come across a mess like that you, you just have to clean it up even though it's one o'clock in the morning and at the time we, we, we had a, a water cut so there wasn't even water coming out of the taps so I had to shuttle backwards and forwards with, with buckets to clean up the mess and you know this points to the fact that there is often a lot of mess in life and sometimes it's not as simple as as a matter of cleaning up vomit and we have to clean up the mess we want to clean up the mess nobody wants to live in with messy relationships a messy environment a, a messy society but but what can be done to clean up the mess unfortunately the main theme as we've discovered of this little letter from Paul to Titus is the theme of transformation and we can say that transformation is about cleaning up the mess and Craig was talking last week about transforming households from the beginning part of chapter 2 and in that passage Paul exhorts us to develop our characters to improve our behavior and to be models of good works and so you could do that you could launch into this program of character development behavior improvement good work and assume that all of that would bring about the transformation that's needed but unfortunately we could very quickly end up on the wrong track because there is more to transformation than meets the eye and that's why paul goes on to talk about the whole picture namely that transformation requires grace as well max lucado once wrote god answers the mess of life with one word, grace. Now, why would this be the case? And I'm sure that if you're new to the Christian faith or you've been about around Christians for a period of time, you'll know that um, we, we talk about grace an awful lot. That word is just bandied about all the time. We preach grace, we, we give thanks for grace, we sing about grace. But what is grace? And what is so amazing about grace? There's an author called Philip Yancey who wrote an entire book answering this question. In fact, the question, what's so amazing about grace, is actually the title of his book. 
So we're going to scratch the surface of the subject today by looking at today's passage and seeing how it answers the question, what is so amazing about grace? Let's read it in uh, Titus chapter 2, 11 through to the end of verse 14. And when it comes up on your screen, you're going to notice that I've underlined certain words. I'll explain that in due course. Starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So just look at that, it'll be on your screen. The grace of God has appeared bringing three things. Salvation for all, training, or another word we could use as teaching for uprightness, and patience, waiting. And then the structure makes it clear as we read on to verse 14 that Jesus is the key to this grace which brings salvation, training, and waiting. Jesus gave himself for us, look at the words that are underlined, to redeem, to purify, and to energize us for work. In fact, you can see that that first list, what grace brings, comes through Jesus' work on the cross, which is the second list. The salvation is brought through Christ's redemption. Teaching to be upright is empowered by Christ's purification of us. I'm putting these two lists together. And though we wait expectantly for Christ's return, he inspires us to work for transformation. So here's what's so amazing about grace. And we're going to talk around these three propositions. First of all, grace brings salvation through redemption. Grace teaches uprightness whilst purifying us. And grace inspires work whilst we wait expectantly. Let's begin with the first one. Grace brings salvation through redemption. Paul exhorts us, gives us these instructions to develop our characters. We need to work at that. We need to improve our behavior. We need to be models of good work. But will this save us? And you know, folks, if we think that this will save us, then we're going to end up on the wrong track. Let me explain why. We've already learned in this series that truth is absolute and objective. It's not a subjective thing whereby Don has his own truth and I have my own truth and our truths contradict each other. No, there is an objective absolute truth and that's because God is the source of truth and he gets to define what is right and what is wrong. Now, a question. Have you ever decided to do something that God defines as wrong? Just say to yourself, God, you stay outside. I don't care that you've said that this is wrong. I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm just going to leave you at the door. You know, that's what Adam did in the garden. He simply rebelled. He didn't murder. He didn't steal, he didn't lie, he didn't rape, he didn't torture. But all he did was to sow a seed 
of rebellion. And that seed led to all of those things. For example, it wasn't long before his son Cain had committed murder, even though Adam never did. Would Cain have committed murder if Adam hadn't rebelled? No, he wouldn't have, because death and sin wouldn't have entered the world. It was that seed of rebellion that caused the problem. And can you see, folks, that you have sown exactly the same seed of rebellion as Adam did? And this rebellion leads to all the mess that we see in the world. It led to death, it led to decay, it led to illness, it led to accidents. And whether you have personally committed murder or any number of other heinous crimes, it's actually beside the point. All these things spring from the seed of rebellion that you and I have sown. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that the just punishment for our rebellion is actually the death that we brought upon ourselves. It's actually the separation from God that we desired when we said, God, I don't want you to be around while I do X, Y, or Z. Please, be somewhere else. That's separation from God. And of course, that's the definition of what hell is. Hell is being separated from the presence of God. The question is at this point, well, how is this problem, how is this rebellion to be dealt with? Can we put things right by character development, by improved behavior and good work? You know, that would be like saying, here, I've cooked this omelet for you. 99% of the ingredients are fine, but there's just a little bit of dog poo in it. It just wouldn't cut it, would it? It's the same if I cheated um, on Gail. She finds out and I say to her, but Gail, you can't get upset because I've only done it once. And for the last 29 years of marriage, I've been a faithful husband. <laughs> I mean, that's not gonna put, it out, put the, the problem right, is it? And the thing is, even if you've rebelled only once, you've become a slave to death. And for you to be set free, a price has to be paid, a redemption price. In those days, you paid a price to set a slave free. There was a redemption price that needed to be paid. And who was it who paid our price? Only the death of a man who had never rebelled, who could satisfy both the mercy and the justice of God could do it. And that's why it says in verse 14, Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Folks, no amount of working is going to pay the price for your redemption. <clears throat> no amount of good character or of good behavior or of good works. Only the full redemption price will do. And, and you can't afford it. That's the truth. You cannot afford that redemption price. And that is why it comes as grace, a gift from God. And the only way to accept it is to believe that Jesus was God and man at the same time, that he died in your place 2,000 years ago and was raised from the dead by God. What's so amazing about grace? It brings salvation through redemption. But does this mean, folks, that good character and behavior and works are of no account? Certainly not. 
Sure, they can't settle the account for our redemption, but they make a huge difference, for example, to the quality of our witness. And they also provide evidence on the outside that we have been redeemed, that we've been transformed on the inside. In fact, the doctrine of grace teaches us to be morally upright. Let's have a look at the second point. What is so amazing about grace? Grace teaches, it actually teaches, it's so interesting, teaches uprightness whilst purifying us. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and so on and so forth. And that word translated training can also be translated teaching. This is, this is so fascinating and I've been blown away by this, that the doctrine of grace actually teaches that, that salvation is a gift received by faith. But on top of that, it also teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Often preachers don't, have, don't preach the whole picture. Yes, it is redemption received by faith. But it also teaches us to behave, to do the right stuff. However, even those things, even self-control, being upright, living a godly life, all of those things are actually enabled by God's grace. Your salvation is assured through the payment of your redemption price, but Jesus' work doesn't end there. Grace teaches uprightness and we must run hard after it but whilst we are, grace continues to purify us because God knows that even our best efforts are not enough. We're still going to need cleaning up at the end of the day. And that's what Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 5. He says, in this grace we now stand. It's almost this idea that grace is like a shower where we do something wrong and that wrong thing, that dirt just gets washed off. There was this time when Jesus did the work of a slave and he did it by washing his disciples' feet because there wasn't a servant present to do that and none of the disciples were humble enough to do it. And it would have been very unpleasant lying at they did at the table with your feet next to someone else's head to have dirty smelly feet. And so he came to Simon Peter, I'm reading from John's Gospel here, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. That's because what he was doing was a picture pointing towards what was going to happen shortly on the cross. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash my whole body. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash, except for his feet, but he is completely clean. What was Jesus getting at? Well, he was using this idea of washing and bathing as a picture. Just think of showering at a national parks campsite. You walk to the ablution block, and after showering, your body is clean. That's a symbol of grace, bringing redemption through salvation. But as you walk back to your tent, your feet are going to get dusty and dirty. And so you need to wipe them off before you get into your sleeping bag. 
And that's the picture that this is what, what, what Jesus is talking about here. Every day you stand in the assurance that your redemption price has been paid for. What an amazing thing about grace. Even if you were to die right now, you would go straight to heaven. But if you don't and you leave here today, leave from this service resolved to live uprightly, your feet are still going to get a little bit dirty because none of us are perfect. But Jesus will wash your feet. He will purify you every day. What's so amazing about grace? It brings salvation through redemption. It teaches uprightness whilst purifying us. And then lastly, grace inspires work whilst we wait expectantly. Just turn to verse 13 there. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What sort of waiting does he have in mind here? I like to think of it in terms of our dog, Squiggles. Whenever we go out um, for a meal or something, or we leave the house and there's nobody left behind, um, Squiggles just waits on the veranda for our return. There's a chair on the veranda that she sits on. And she's convinced that we're going to come back. She won't move. She keeps her eyes fixed on the gate. She wants to be ready for when we return. She's full of anticipation and expectation. But oh my word, I know that it requires patience and long-suffering. And it's the same for us. And when Jesus returns, our salvation will be complete. But here's the thing. That waiting does not imply inactivity. Look at verse 14. It says there, Jesus purchased a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This means, folks, that your life doesn't belong to you anymore. It's been purchased by Jesus through, the, through his death on the cross. It belongs to him. And what does he want from you if you now belong to him? It says here, he wants you to be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. I wonder if that describes you. Just, just, <laughs> I wonder if it describes me for that matter. Let's just think of that word zeal. Zeal is great energy and enthusiasm. That's the definition of zeal. So zealous for good works means to have great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of good works. I mean, waza. I don't know about you, but I've just got a long way to go. I... If I was zealous and enthusiastic and energetic for good works, I'd probably think of something that maybe I'd even done today or certainly done yesterday. But to be honest, sometimes it takes me a while to remember the last time I did something that was good in God's eyes um, with zealousness and enthusiasm. Folks, when we hear the doctrine of grace, we often think, that it doesn't imply our effort, that it doesn't imply our work. But that's not true. May it never be said that the teaching of grace excludes work. Yes, it does exclude work as the means of salvation, but it never, never excludes work as a result of salvation. May it never be said that the doctrine of grace excludes upright behavior and character. Of course, it excludes them as the path to salvation, 
but it never, never excludes them as the fruit of salvation. And so what I'd like to say today is that if we want to see transformation in our own lives, if we want to see transformation in our communities, we need to have gone through that step where we have been redeemed through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then we need to see the fruit and the result of that inner change happening in our outer lives as we, as we work on our character, as we work on our morals, um, as we as we do things, as we, we do good works to serve other people and to serve the community. And of course, grace is at, at the heart of all these things. Grace started the journey when our redemption was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it continues the journey as it washes us clean every day when we don't quite meet up to the standard. And then, of course, it energizes us. It gives us that zeal and that energy and that enthusiasm that we need to serve others, to serve our community, and to make a difference in our nation. Shall we pray? Father God, I, I don't know about, about the people who've been hearing this message, but I, I have certainly been cut to the heart. And I just know that there's so much, so much more that can be done so much more fruit that can be born and so much more work that can be done in my life as an expression of that inner change. And um, I know that, that I speak for many people this morning when I say, Father God, I want to commit myself to, to making use of your grace to clean up the mess. If grace is the answer to the mess in the world, then Father, help me to be a channel of that grace. Help me to be the kind of person who extends grace to other people by, by serving them, by doing good things for them, by, by adorning the gospel with my example and with my life. And Father, we want to make that commitment before you uh, in Jesus' name, with the witness of the Holy Spirit, and, and just ask for your grace and your help to fulfill it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, as always, for signing in with us, and we look forward to being with you again in the near future. Cheers for now.